This is an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. The topic is Recovery Basics for Addicts and Partners, delivered by Dr. Stephanie Carnes, PhD, during our Restoring Intimacy Conference in September 2015. Other recordings from that event are available on our website, www.healthyintimacy.net. Since this is um, a nice, small size group, I would love to keep it interactive and discussion-oriented if you guys are open to that and have questions. So um, I decided, um, now I had on my slide that I was supposed to do recovery basics for addicts, partners, and couples. So I have actually a section for all three. I did kind of, uh, the way I set it up, I just thought, well, what would be some of the most important things in each of those areas? So I did like, I did five principles in each area, five for addicts, five for partners, five for couples, um, just of things for people who are just, you know, kind of starting out new to this, and, um, but I'm really open to talking uh, and answering questions as we go along. We have an hour and 10 minutes, so um, I'll just go ahead and get kind of started charging in. I started with the addicts today, so I, we talked about this, how important it is for everybody to have their own therapist, their own group support, and hopefully a couples therapist. So I think that's really important. Um, principle one, treatment begins with comprehensive assessment by a qualified professional. One thing I would just say that there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, of different types of, of training programs out there, and some of them are, you know, like a DVD in a box, and you get some credentials after your name. So you want to be, you want to make sure that your therapist, you ask them about their credentials, make sure that they actually have some training, uh, you know, and our, like our training is, uh, it's uh, four modules of four and a half days that requires supervision, there's ethics training, there's homework, there's, it's very rigorous. This is not um, an easy population to treat. This is very complicated because it does border on issues of offenders and, and you have very complicated situations with kids that come up and ethical issues that come up and disclosures and you want somebody that is going to do that well. Um, we Unfortunately, we get a lot of phone calls from people um, where they've gone to an untrained person and um, you know, really botched the disclosure process and it's been a very negative experience. So um, you want to be very careful about that. Um, so in terms of assessment tools, um, there are some really good things online to help evaluate whether someone's a sex addict or not. Um, we use the ZASTAR. It's been uh, around for a long time. You can go to sexhelp.com and there's a test on there that says, Am I a sex addict? And it compares you with huge uh, populations of, normed, of norms. And it gives you a profile and a printout. And that's just a free assessment. So anybody can go to sexhelp.com and, um, and get, uh, take the ZAST. Um, the pathos is right here. Um, these are the five items that are the strongest predictor variables for sex addiction. And so it was created, uh, the pathos is the Greek word for suffering. It was, this instrument was modeled after the CAGE, which is the uh, assessment for alcoholism that was created for doctors, four little, four questions that's like an acronym. So the most common items are, do you find yourself preoccupied? Do you hide some of your behaviors? Have you sought help? Has anybody been hurt emotionally? Do you feel controlled by your sexual desires when you have sex? Uh, do you feel depressed afterwards? So the, those are the f uh, six strongest predictor variables. M most um, people with sex addiction struggle with um, more than two of those. So that's when you would, um, and I can get, I can post these some these slides somewhere if people want copies of these. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so uh, we use the SDI. So there are very comprehensive 
evaluations that somebody can get for sex addiction. So the SDI is a battery of tests, and this is the, one of the most comprehensive uh, evaluations that a therapist can give you in terms of this. And it has huge, uh, it, it looks at the diagnostic criteria. It also looks at the criteria for sexual anorexia, which is kind of counterintuitive. Um, that is sort of the flip side of sex addiction. A lot of sex addicts feel like they, they are able to uh, use porn or use prostitutes, but then in their relationship, they're really struggling being sexual. So it's actually really highly related, and about half of sex addicts struggle with being intimate in a healthy way. And so we call that sexual anorexia. It's sort of like the flip side. So it includes an evaluation for that. If you're interested, Pat wrote a book on sexual anorexia. You can actually get, uh, it has exercises and things in that if that's something that you're interested in. Um, it has a, a lot of different scales, but um, this is what the ZAST looks like. So if you went to that website, you could see that it has really good what we call discriminant validity of discriminating between who's an addict and who's not. So the populations are really very different and distinct. Um, and this is, the, this is one page of the SDI. The SDI report is 35 pages long. And it gives you, it has 47 scales just on sexual behaviors alone. So it gives you a huge profile of everything possible uh, that you could do sexually. And I think that the, um, you know, that it's really important for, the, for whoever the addict is working with, with their therapist, that they're really able to assess that thoroughly. We also have, like I have uh, our clients do timelines, huge timelines of all their sexual behaviors. Um, and this is also gets folded into their first steps and all of that. It's important to get this very deep comprehensive evaluation because this informs the whole rest of treatment. And um, like for example, like the disclosure process, which we're gonna talk about. If you don't have everything out on the table, you can't do an effective disclosure. So you really do want to get a very comprehensive uh, evaluation. So this is just one of the profiles, and you can see here it has like, you know, swinging and group sex, relationship addiction, uh, pain exchange, voyeurism, paying for sex, you know, all sorts of different types, and there's 47 of these. So very comprehensive. These are some of the other skills. I mentioned earlier that we have some typologies too that are starting to form. So these are, this is a, a, a slide of that. Some common typologies that we're starting to see in our research. We have the first one is like pain and role playing, like with, that involves sadomasochism and pain exchange. Um, the second one is hostility and exploiting the vulnerable. It's less common typology, um, but if that's certainly one. Uh, sexualized attachment, this is where it's about more about relationships and conquest and seduction and um, that type of thing. Um, isolated self-stimulating, that's your porn user that just isolates. Um, the swinging and public anonymous group. Um, networking, that's your phone apps and your networking and hookups, that type of thing. And uh, drug and sex trade use, where there's uh, drug interaction involved. So right now, that's just kind of an overview of some of the uh, typologies that have started to come out in our research on this. We also look at the stages of readiness, like the readiness to change, um, that, that how, how ready is the addict to uh, engage in the recovery process. So these are very important. Also the arousal template. It's really important for the addicts and their therapist and the sponsor too, really to be aware of all the items that are on the addict's arousal template. So um, the arousal template is basically your erotic map or what it is that you're aroused by. And um, so everybody has an arousal template for a lot of people. It could be like body types or ethnicities or um, certain sex acts, that kind of thing that are more arousing than other things. Well, with addiction, sometimes the arousal templates can get um, start to evolve into fetishes in certain areas or specific behaviors that are very triggering for the addict, and it's very important that the therapists work with them on that for relapse prevention and so that they know what all those areas are. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, 
This was a, a client that I worked with. When he was five, his cousins and his sister pinned him down and put girls' underwear on him. And they, they kept on doing it. They did it repeatedly. And for him, he, when he thinks back on that, he felt a lot of shame around it. Um, uh, but he also felt arousal, which is common in sexual abuse. You have the shame and the arousal. It's part of the double whammy of sexual abuse. That's why it's so confusing and complicated. Um, later, he developed an underwear fetish. And so that became a real part of his addiction. Our childhood years are very formative in terms of our developing sexuality. So significant events things like that can become part of our sexual behavior when we're adults and uh, very powerful parts. So um, that's the arousal tomboy. This is one other one. This is another client. When he was six, he was watching his babysitter change bathing suits through the window, and that was his first time ever seeing that. And you know, he learned there that watching was arousing, and he did get into voyeurism later. So these kind of, a lot of times with the behaviors, you want to peel the layer of the onion back. And it's really important for the addicts to let those secrets out, let go of that, and share that with other people in a, in a supportive environment. Um, Bill W. used to talk about, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets. And it's about honesty. It's about becoming transparent and really letting go of those secrets. And what I've seen happen is when the double life goes away, all of a sudden, the depression gets better, the anxiety gets better, the relationships fall into place. So it's a really critical part of this uh, exploration of really getting it all out there. And for the addict in early recovery, it's probably sequenced in that you're going to have, um, you know, first they're going to be sharing the these type of things with their therapist and their sponsor and in preparation of a disclosure to share with their partner. Um, and that takes a lot of preparation. I'm going to talk about that because you don't want to further traumatize the partner, um, but you want to give the partner all the facts and empower the partner with the truth. So that's a real delicate process and it, and it takes a lot of preparation to do that. Um, second principle, cutting edge treatment is group therapy. I put that out there earlier today. It's so important. Um, you know, it's just, if you think about chemical dependency, you would never ask a drug addict for, to go for the 50 minute hour and goodbye, I'll see you next week, right? You would never expect that a drug addict would be able to do that. But why would, so why would we expect that a sex addict is going to be able to do that? They need support. They need more than one hour a week. We talk about programmatic care, that the, ad, that's, the addicts need more and more care than that. So it, the group process provides accountability. It reduces shame. It normalizes the process. They're not the only ones in the world struggling with this. This is much more common than people think. Um, there is a healing process, gives them a path, gives them hope. Um, and my, in my opinion, um, you know, you have the 12-step work um, should be coupled with a therapeutic curriculum. They should be in therapy with a therapist that also provides a group process. There's it, you get different things from the 12-step process that you, than what you get in a therapeutic process. Um, so I think it's important that, that the addict get both of those worlds. Um, so we, um, we use a treatment protocol that involves the, the um, material that Pat developed over the years. So he calls it the 30 task model. Um, so this is his 30 tasks. Um, and it's, you know, we won't have time to go into all of it. But it's basically what he followed people over time and found the ones that were most successful were the ones that did the most of these. And um, so the I'll just sh share with you like the first seven is really uh, a good place to start for the addict breakthrough denial. Um, I actually think I have another. Oh, yeah, here. This is the first seven here. Whoops. So I can't, can't really see, but uh, like 
breakthrough denial is the first one. They make a problem list, do their secrets, get the loose list of excuses out, their consequences inventory. They find a therapist and a sponsor. So they, I usually have them do their timeline to kind of really get it all out. You have to really um, open up and get into detail in that, that first step. Um, the second one, hold on, this is not, is understand addiction. And then you have like surrender to the process. Limit damage to the behavior, establish sobriety, ensure physical integrity. So each one of these tasks has performables and exercises associated with it that the therapist works with them in group on. And so like, um, for example, surrendering to the process. They do their se complete sex addiction history, a powerlessness inventory, an unmanageability inventory, financial cost worksheet, their worst moments in their addiction. So there's a therapeutic process and a method that is done in the group that's different from the steps. And then the steps work their own beauty on the side. And it just is a beautiful marriage. So the really, it's very nice to have a therapeutic process that's structured and a, um, a process uh, that's 12-step support that's structured. Um, so any other questions on that? Or any questions on that? Yeah. The he's got recovery zone one, which is eight through nineteen. Recovery zone two is probably gonna be out later in about a year. So it's he's most of the way done, but with the editing and the layout, yeah. So, and I have a book. Uh, I'm working on a book. It's called Re Restoring Relational Integrity that focuses on the the uh, nineteen through thirty. A lot of the family tasks. So that'll be coming out too. Um, the next one, treatment should assess and treat all addictions. I mentioned earlier the, about the high rates of comorbidity with um, sex addiction. So really you have to look at other types of addictions. Here's just some data, for example. Um, this was a study on 1,600 sex addicts. They found that alcohol was the most frequently co-occurring addiction in males and females at 46%. However, in gay males, drug abuse was more frequent, 54%. Gay males scored higher on high-risk, dangerous behavior. Women scored higher on compulsive spending, eating, and cleaning. So you can see uh, how many met diagnostic criteria for another addiction in this study here, very high rates. And they're expanding the term to, of addiction to include behavioral addictions here. So if you want to kind of expand your thinking on addictions, you can kind of look at the ones that are out of control, like binge eating, bulimia, sex and romance, alcohol, drugs, spending, debting, risk-taking, work, and gambling. And then you also have the, some that are more about compulsive control. Um, like dieting, like as we were talking about anorexia before, uh, sexual avoidance, saving, hoarding, risk aversion, compulsive athleticism. And you can have some of those that create patterns. So for example, I had a, a client who was a female uh, sex and love addict. She would get married, gain 100 pounds, um, become sexually aversive in her marriage, get divorced, lose 100 pounds, and act out sexually with men, lots of random anonymous sexual encounters with men. Then she would get married, again, gain 100 pounds, became aversive. She did it four times, divorced, acted out. So she was flip-flopping food and sex in the acting in and acting out. So sometimes you can see patterns over time that emerge. And so what I, when I talk to the addicts, I talk to them about how important it is to make sure you're living your life in balance in all of the areas, all of these areas that you're in balance in your finances. You're exercising with balance. You're, you're eating with balance. So you don't get sober and then gain 60 pounds in the next six months. It's a very important part of the recovery process. So here's just a few examples. This is, a, um, this is a crack addict sex addict. So here's the crack pipe, and it's pumping up the sex addiction like a bicycle pump. So they're both escalating as it gets, goes on. And this was a female uh, client. She lost her three kids due to her addiction. They, so here they are watching her here as she hangs herself on the tree of men and booze and strip clubs and S&M and 
crack and heroin and all of that. So um, now, for, happily, she got into recovery, and a year later, she got her kids back. So there's a happy ending to this one. So. Um, this was an addict. Here you can see he's, he's juggling his addictions on plates. So this is gambling, cocaine. Um, this is porn. This is work, and that's the one that's falling. You see? That's the plate that's falling. And here's marijuana. And here's his partner. So you can see the anorexia in the relationship. So it's like, she's like, where are you? You know? And so you see that dynamic there. So, um, yeah. Good example. This was a female here. She starts off with um, cigarettes and binge eating, Oreos, cookies, and cakes. Lots of sex, sexual promiscuity. Um, here she falls in love. She tells you her, her story here. Has a manic episode, more alcohol, a broken heart, marijuana, alcohol, more sex. Here she is working until 11 p.m. at night, sleeping 12 to 14 hours a day, marijuana, mood swings, pharmaceuticals, eventually got to shooting up and was, uh, I think, it attempted suicide before she came in. So you can see all the different addictions that she incorporated. And one of the interesting things, Pat did a study once that showed that the increased amount of trauma that someone has, um, the more trauma the, and the more chronic it is, the increase in the number of addictions that person has. And so, which makes sense, you got a bigger pool of pain under there, you gotta, you're gonna reach out to a lot of different resources to try and medicate it. So. Yeah, it's important to look at all this. This was an alcoholic prostitute user, so he would drink and drive and pick up the prostitutes. He's depicting himself with the margarita. That's him there. Um, I love this one. This one's a good drawing because it just shows everything. Here he is. Uh, he's a compulsive uh, overworker. He's a workaholic. So here he is coming home really late from bit from business, from a business meeting. He's got the supersized McDonald's meal in the front seat of the car, the directions to Trixie's on the front seat, and there's the money flying out the window, and my favorite part is the rearview mirror and the stop sign. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> so I think he gets it all right there. And this is another uh, really good one. So um, Pat talks a lot about the addictive cycle. Maybe some of you might be familiar with that, where you have a, uh, a belief system that I'm an unworthy person that leads to addictive thinking, which is I'm not good enough. Nobody would love me as I am. Um, you know, I'm you know worthless. That type of thing, which leads to compulsive behavior, and the compulsive behavior usually is involves a ritual and then the acting out, and then the despair and shame afterwards. And all of this leads back up to unmanageability. And so that's, which contributes to the belief system. So that's a big cycle that continues on. So I sh shared this with the patients, and um, I asked them to draw a piece of that. And this client drew his ritualization. And it's such a good example that you don't have to be a good artist to do art therapy, because this is a very good depiction. He was like shaking when he was putting it down in group, because it was so powerful for him. So he says, he's at work, and he's preoccupied. And he can't stop thinking about getting on the computer and using porn. So here he is, like obsessing, can't wait to leave work. And here he's doing what we call euphoric recall. You see the smile? It's like, oh, yeah, I can't wait. He's got that smile going on. Um, and then he gets out, finally gets out of work, move, goes over to the dealer's house, ding dong. Want a drink? He says, line me up. He puts the cocaine on the bar, buys the cocaine, move, goes over to Safeway, got my jack, almost home, finally home, all locked up, and then he has the cocaine, the alcohol, and the porn, and would stay up all night, and then be very hungover the next day for work. So this was his ritual. He was doing this many, to many times a week, and it was destroying his life. Okay. So now I'm, I'm thinking most people in the room are probably familiar with this, but the sexual health plan. Um, we advocate for the three circles methodology. Um, so this is uh, basically an approach of individualizing what is healthy sex for you. And so um, the center circle, some people like to use like stoplight colors, red, yellow, green, to kind of help the 
in the inside circle being red, these are what we call your bottom line behaviors. So this is what the addict does to, um, th these, are the, th these are the behaviors that the addict agrees are his addiction or her addiction. These are the behaviors. So it's usually like porn, strip clubs, you know, uh, anonymous sexual encounters, prostitution, whatever it happens to be, you put all of those behaviors on the, the uh, abstinence list, the center circle. The middle circle here is the boundaries. So this is all the things that you're going to avoid to help you avoid your abstinence behaviors. So I'm not even going to, I'm not going to email any females at, uh, you know, that I, that I don't have to email for work, for example. Or I'm not going to drive down the street where the prostitutes are. I'm not going, you know, I'm, you know, so it's all the different things that you're going to put in your life to help protect you from the acting out behavior. I'm not going to use a computer that doesn't have a filtering system on it, for example. So you put that in there. The outer circle is your healthy behaviors. So this often includes your, um, you know, things like 12-step groups and yoga and meditation and self-care and therapy and all of that. But you can also do it, like I often ask couples to do this together a little bit further down, down where they do a couple's uh, three-circle um, for their own sexuality, where they look at the outer circle as what are some of the lovely ways that you guys enjoy being intimate with each other. So, um, you know, I, I use the 12 dimensions of healthy sexuality, things like nurturing, how can you nurture each other? How can you um, look at sensuality? Can you take baths together? Can you do, um, you know, massage together, whatever. So you try and expand the couple's, in, you know, uh, definitions of what is healthy intimacy for them so that they both can have that definition and then they define together what is not what is on their abstinent list so you kind of take what the addicts uh, sexual health plan and also take into consideration the partner's sexuality how she's been wounded he or she has been wounded by the addiction and things that she might be uncomfortable with given that and where they'd like to go on the outer circle. So it's just kind of a nice activity with the couples to kind of bring that together and bring that healthy sexuality in. And it's very individualized. So you might have somebody that is a compulsive masturbator that is masturbating 10 times a day, like that physician I told you guys about earlier. He may not be able to have masturbation on his healthy behaviors. Um, so you're, you might have to, whereas if you have somebody that is having uh, it's more about relationships and affairs, well, masturbation might be on their uh, healthy sexual behaviors for them because they don't have that issue. So it's individualized depending on the person's need, and it's often considered like a working document. So the therapist and the sponsor are always privy to any changes on the sexual health plan, and it's discussed and processed, right? I had a question somewhere, yeah. Okay, I'm, let me talk about the partner section and then let's get back to that. I have a, a, an assessment that I do that I develop for partner sexuality that explores all the, the it's an online assessment. You can go and you can take it online. I'll give you the website. But it gives you the 11 dimensions of the partner sexuality. And so I suggest that they read uh, chapter six in Mending that Omar wrote, read one of my chapters in Facing Heartbreak about sexuality impact on the partner, I have them take that test. Because so often we look at, we focus on what's going on with the addict's sexuality and so much focus on that and so rarely do we turn around and ask what's going on with the partner. And that's a huge piece of the puzzle. So we really have to, if you're gonna do couples work, we need to open that up and look at what's going on with him or her and then do open that up in dialogue in the couple's therapy. And then I will put it on, have them take the, the addict sexual health plan, take her data from her survey and from our discussions, and work together to do a document on the a couple's three circles. Yeah. yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, okay. 
All right, five. Um, oh, yes. Treatment needs to include assessment for underlying trauma. So this is huge, okay? We, you saw the rates of trauma earlier. And unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, don't understand trauma. I can't tell you how many times I've met with addicts and they say, oh, I don't have a trauma background. And then I'll start to get to hear their history. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, that there's a lot there. And so people oftentimes don't think of themselves as having trauma when in fact they do. And that, that, that there's trauma underlying what's been going on with them. So it is important to to assess for trauma. And there's lots of great trauma modalities. Uh, this is not a, I mean, EMDR, you've probably heard of some of these EMDR, somatic experiencing, biofeedback, internal family systems, psychodrama, post-induction, PMLities model, mindfulness. I mean, it goes on and on. There's so many great trauma treatments, but they need to be evaluated for that and, and they need treatment for that. That helps support the recovery process. So any other questions on, uh, that was just five top principles that I selected for addict recovery. Any questions on those before we start talking about the partner a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, mending chapter six is on partner sexuality and facing heartbreak chapter, s I think it's seven, seven or eight. Yeah, yeah. In my opinion, there are some therapists that will go back and forth and, and do it all. That's not my recommendation. It's not my recommendation to the people that I train. Um, because of uh, the intensity of this work, the um, potential for secrets and even relapses, and um, information coming out, if I'm a therapist and I'm treating both, Let's, I'll just give you an example of, of one thing that could happen. And let's say the addict relapses. And they are now, they're coming back to me, they don't want to tell me because I'm also treating the partner. And they might not, you know, it gets complicated quickly. So the cleanest thing is for the partner to have their own support person, the addict to have their own support person. And then um, the couple gets, you know, their... Own. And like I said earlier, often early on, the couple's therapy is like crisis management. Until you get through disclosure, you're not actually processing or, you know, really getting to the hurt feelings because you can't have vulnerability prior to disclosure, really. The par part, neither party, you know, the partners certainly don't feel safe to be vulnerable. So you have to get past that, and then you can actually do deeper couples therapy. So... But yeah, I recommend different therapists. And sometimes that during the disclosure process, you have two therapists involved in that process. That's the optimal situation. Yeah. Sure. Um, so you want them to have a good working relationship. And um, sometimes it, it gets really dicey. I mean, I, I literally do like a three-day training on this type of issue. <laughs> so it gets, it's complicated because like, for example, um, there's a timing component to it. So if I'm, like if I'm, um, let's say uh, Janelle is my partner and I'm working with her and Paul is, is working with another therapist, I am not going to want to know all of the information that is coming up in the disclosure if I'm Janelle's therapist because I don't want, I, I, you know, she and I are going to, I'm going to support her through this disclosure process. If I know everything, then it's like everybody knows but her, you know? It's not, it's, and besides that, I, you know, I'm a very transparent person. I don't want to keep that kind of secret, right? So what I will do is I will, I will give information to the addicts therapist about what Janelle wants to know in the disclosure. These are the important things for her to have in there and give that information. The information goes this direction to the addicts therapist. Now, after disclosure, or on the day or two before disclosure, I'm going to get the information because I want to read it before I go in there. So I don't, you know, I don't want to be surprised in the moment, right? So I'm going to, so then that way I can be there to support her as best I can in the moment. So there's a lot that of, you know, uh, nuances to that type of thing. Sometimes there's, you know, reasons why I wouldn't want that information.
www.iitap.com. Those are the C that's the list of CSAT therapists that are, um, uh, you know, go through that training process. And there, it, it just says find a therapist, and you click on the link, and it, they're uh, by zip code. Yeah. Yeah, the letter I twice. I I T A P dot com. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and if I'm the addict's therapist, it's my job to get all the information, make sure the addict is in his solid recovery, preparing him, and then we get the partner very ready with her supports in place. And we plan out her whole week. We get it all organized so she has her support. She has somebody that drives with her. She has a place she's going that evening. She, the kids are taken care of. The whole week is planned so that she can be supported during the process. It's very, this is why I, I, that's why I started off with make sure you have a trained therapist. Because if you botch this, it's not pretty. And you end up spending a lot more money in the end. So that's, you want it to be carefully done. Mm -hmm. Most therapists are very reluctant to diagnose a minor with sex addiction. It's just they're, they're supposed to be sex crazy. <laughs> that's, their <laughs> that's their job at that age, you know? And we, you don't really have enough time to really assess if it's a compulsive pattern. Now, there have been some cases where I've seen adolescents where you can clearly see it's compulsive and there's tons of time and it's out of control. But in the most cases, it's not. It's like what you're talking about. And so in those instances, we usually use the terminology, you know, like if they're feeling out of control with their sexual behavior or problematic sexual behavior or um, problematic porn use or something, you keep it lighter until they're older and they're really demonstrating a pattern. It's devastating. It's so hard. It's just a tragedy what's happening with porn in our youth right now. It really is. Um, you know, it's not, I, I'm not all anti-porn. <laughs> I know the, the, they told me that the conference wasn't meant to be all anti-porn, so I'm, um, I think people get in trouble with it. Um, there are some people that can use it in recreationally and um, don't have a problem with it, but I see more and more people like this um, that... Um, yeah, exactly. You you can still do a sexual health plan and talk about what healthy sexuality, a lot of education about healthy sexuality. Um, you know, that's that's really important. Communication, support, right? But yeah, tip, and, and you can't really send them to 12-step uh, groups either. So a lot of people are doing more... Um, you know, either groups in uh, therapy groups or there are um, multiple places across the country that have uh, um, intensives or inpatient residential options for these teens, yeah. yeah. Oh. Okay, um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about the partner. Okay, partners need treatment for betrayal trauma. So I, I talked a little bit about that earlier today. Um, I'm, I did include a couple duplicate slides because I wasn't sure how many people would have been in my morning session. So I'm going to just skip over the ones that we did this morning. Um, okay. So I would just um, say that they need their own therapist. They need their, that this is very traumatic for them. Um, you know, a therapist that understands trauma and the trauma model for partners I think is very important. Um, we don't want, uh, you know, I don't advocate any approach that pathologizes uh, partners or their response. Um, I think we want to, you know, I encourage therapists to just go at it from a, from a perspective of really supporting them and supporting them from that this is a traumatic experience and validating that trauma. And I think that's really important. So, um, the, that partners can also greatly benefit from a group process as well for betrayal trauma. So um, I wrote my workbook to be used in group. These are some of the tasks. These are the first seven tasks for partners. 
uh, cope with the trauma of discovery and disclosure, manage the crisis, develop a plan for support and self-care, understand the nature of addiction, deal with emotional aftershock, communicate effectively about the addiction, and create a recovery plan. So for example, I have exercises in here that they work on in group, things like how to set your non-negotiable boundaries, how to set emotional, physical, sexual boundaries, how to write an impact letter to the addict about how this has impacted you. So I usually work on taking them through a process where the partner has a dis you know gets the disclosure and then the partner responds with an impact letter of how this has impacted them and shares that with the addict so the addict really can hear how this has hurt them on many levels. And then I usually have the addict to do what I call an emotional restitution letter to the partner in which they really um, try to help have the partner understand that uh, they, they get how much they've hurt them, that they understand. And usually these letters, like my impact letter is an eight-part letter. It's meant to be a long, comprehensive letter that uses specifics and examples to where they really take that apart and share their feelings and their perspectives in, in different areas with the addict. Um, then the addict does the same, a comprehensive letter to the partner. So sort of a back and forth that kind of, you know, provides them some structure to the process of healing. Right. Right. It's a different process. And there are, uh, you know, ex this book, the book is written for whether you stay with the addict or not. So there's a lot of exercises in there to just process. Um, so if they're not with the, the addict, then it's a healing process of processing the losses, their pain, their grief around that, and moving forward. Yeah. Sometimes when, like, for example, if the addict's not getting into recovery, the healthiest option for the partner sometimes is to leave. So, it, yeah, that is what it is. So, other, I thought I saw another hand. Nope, okay. All right. Uh, partners need assistance with boundary development, okay. So usually what we do early on is the partners, uh, I have the partners set what's called non-negotiables. So these are things that um, have to be done in the relationship in order for the relationship to continue. So it usually looks like, you know, you need to sever the tie with the affair partner that you're having. You need to participate in treatment and share with me your plan. Um, you know, I, we need a, a filtering uh, process on our computer and we put it in the kitchen so I don't have porn in my house. That's, you know, too traumatizing for me at the moment. So it's things like, if I'm going to be in this relationship, this is what I need to maintain in the healing process right now. And then we go into emotional, physical, and other uh, boundaries. So like emotional boundaries. If you feel triggered to act out, I need you to go talk to your sponsor about it and not to me. I need you to w watch the kids on Tuesdays and Thursdays so I can go to my support group. You know, I need you, if you change your treatment plan, I need you to tell me about it so I know what the update is, so that I'm privy to, you know, I know what's going on. So those are the kind of things that we're talking about that, that protects the partner emotionally as they're going through the process. Now, physical sexual boundaries, you know, these could be things like, if you relapse, I want you to um, tell me within five days and not have sex with me in the time between when you relapse and when you tell me. Um, or I want you to sleep in the other room for a while. <laughs> you know, I don't want to change clothes in front of you right now. Whatever it happens to be. So it's like different boundaries depending on where the partner's at and what they need at that time. Um, and then people, places, and things. You know, I need to change churches since you acted out with people at our church. I need to replace our bedding since you acted out in our bed. I, you know, I want to be present when you, when we talk to the children about this or, you know, so things like that. So this boundary process is challenging. It takes a lot of work. It's intensive with the partners and um, sometimes can take a long time and then you have to revise it, go back and revise it, right? So... I also really work with them on who we talk about this to. 
Um, unfortunately, a lot of times, you, partners are usually in one or two extremes. One, they, they're, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm going to take this to my grave. I'm not going to tell a soul about it. Or, have you told your mother about this? You need to tell your people at church, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like the extremes. I, I once had a couple that it was very new in, in the recovery, and she wanted him to do his testimony at church, and he was brand new. And he did it, unfortunately. And it just, they were not ready, and it just, um, they ended up leaving the church because she was too embarrassed to go back. She felt people were judging her for being with him. And it was just really, they weren't ready for that process. And they lost a huge support system for them. So I, I really try and talk with them about who you, we need to select a few safe to support people and who are those people in your life and really trying to who's not going to judge you if you stay if you go if you fail if you succeed whatever it is who's not going to judge you who's going to have your back be in your corner you get those people you identify and that's your cheerleaders so yeah Okay, so sexuality, we talked a little bit about this for the partner. It's not this, this the addict sexuality that's impacted. So um, I talked about Omar's research with the focus groups this morning. And um, I, out of some of his original research, I developed a quantitative instrument. It's a test that you take. And it's now on the second version. It's published. Um, and it's a short survey, but you can take it. And it gives you, um, you can actually, there's a paper version in Facing Heartbreak, but it's much easier to take the um, internet version. So you go to recoveryzone.com, and it says take the PSS, and you take it. And it's like, um, I think it's very inexpensive. It's like five bucks. It like goes to support the development of the website and the tool. And it gives you a profile sheet. Um, and uh, these are the different categories. So you can be in, uh, have a little impact in the area, minor impact, moderate impact, strong impact, very strong impact. And these are the categories. So relational sexual difficulties, that's like um, where the partner finds it difficult to be sexually close with the addict. So this is like, um, you know, I'm, I, 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 you know, I'm disgusted by the thought of being touched now. I don't want to get physically close to the addict, that kind of thing. Um, the second category is sex addiction. This is when the partner, too, has a sex addiction. So some part, sometimes you have two addicts that get in the relationship. Um, sexual aversion for the partner. Um, sexual shame. And so this is where they're actually taking the addiction and doing self-attribution, like if I was a better lover, this wouldn't have happened, or if I was sexier, if I had, you know, these different qualities, I this wouldn't have happened. Um, body image issues, this is really high usually with our porn uh, partners of porn addicts because they feel like they are constantly comparing with hundreds and thousands of novel babes online. So it's like they're, how, how do I compare with that? So there's, a, you know, you know, I wish I, you know, wish my body was different or I feel inferior, you know. Um, risk for abuse or injury. Um, this is where there's some uh, potential for a little domestic violence or sexual violence in the relationship. Um, desire for retribution. This is things like I can't get past wanting payback for how the addicts hurt me. Um, sometimes you see... Um, like sexual retaliation or even sometimes financial retaliation from uh, the partner. Um, sexual secrets, so this is with the partner too would have sexual secrets. Um, this scale is really highly correlated with the sex addiction scales, naturally. Um, obligatory sex, so this is, well, the addict is in uh, treatment, so I feel like I'm obligated to have sex with him or her. Um, the addict's getting help, so now like, I feel like we got to work it out, like, even though I don't want, you know, I feel like, like I don't want to, that kind of thing. Uh, broken trust um, and fear of health consequences. So it kind of gives you like a little bit of a profile of where they land on those issues. Then I have them take that. I usually meet with them individually, explore that, and then we often will share with the addict, um, you know, some of what the partner is processing around this, and then do the circles that I was sharing with you earlier. I was just going to say 
is this more for the, the partner or for the addict? No, this is for the partner. Yep, I'm sorry, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, I just went through those scales. Okay, and then we talked a little bit about this earlier, complex trauma. Some partners are going to need treatment for complex trauma. So if they have a history of severe trauma, complex trauma, treatment can be more challenging. Um, so tra complex trauma is when you have stressors that are repetitive, prolonged, cumulative, often are interpersonal in nature. Um, like exploitation, maltreatment, including neglect or abandonment, or antipathy by caregivers or other responsible adults. When you have a partner that has that kind of history where they had neglect or some sort of severe abuse in their background, they're kind of, it, it makes it very difficult for them to trust. And then once they do, they get married, they trust, and then they get hurt again. It's very hard for them to bounce back from that. So they have, you know, it's really um, important that somebody that understands that kind of uh, treatment of complex trauma to get involved in the treatment process there. So um, when when you have complex trauma, obviously you have more toxic shame in the partners, a belief that others can't be relied upon, there's more likely to have insecure attachment there, and a risk for re-victimization, that they'll have, you know, get into another relationship that where something, like we call it trauma repetition, where something else will happen. So um, I'll just read a little bit of this to you. This is... Um, I just thought it was an interesting quote, quote. Our clients' most frequent presenting problems are not the many symptoms of PTSD, um, but, the re but rather their failed and failing relationships. They want to love and be loved by someone, and it's not going well. Our clients offer en often enter our offices with a sense of hope and dread. Therapy evokes the most challenging dilemmas for survivors of betrayal trauma. Um, Vanderkolk and his colleagues write, the process of entering and maintaining a treatment relationship is always extremely complex. However, it becomes even more so when the patient's been humiliated, hurt, and betrayed, often by people who the person is supposed to count on to provide safety and protection. Many betrayal survivors of betrayal trauma come to therapy with the belief that abuse is an, a dreaded but an avoidable fate that is acceptable as the inevitable price of a relationship. So when you have abuse that's interpersonal in nature, somebody is, like, it's different than a natural disaster. It's different than coping with, like, a stranger situation. When it's somebody that's supposed to love you and then they hurt you, it makes trust so much harder to restore. And so that's when you have that complex trauma that you need to go in there and kind of help the partner kind of heal from. And that can be a long process, yeah. Um, this is Peter Levine, very famous trauma therapist. He says, most people think of trauma as a mental problem, even as a brain disorder. However, trauma is something that also happens in the body. We become scared stiff, or alternatively, we collapse, overwhelmed, and defeated with helpless dread. Either way, it defeats life. How? Ooh. W with our partners, we have this sort of window of tolerance. Well, Dan Siegel talks about this window of tolerance of where we can handle uh, uh, emotional and stressful things in our lives. When something comes up that's too stressful and we get outside of that window of tolerance, and if, if you're a trauma victim, your tolerance window is smaller. And so you're luckily to, lucky, likely to get stuck on which is hypervigilance, anxiety, emotional flooding, hostility, rage, sleeplessness, inability to relax, digestive problems, that type of thing, or stuck off, which is depression, flat affect, lethargy, chronic fatigue, poor digestion, dissociation, exhaustion. So you can see partners that are on one or two of those extremes, hypervigilant, stressed, reacting, or depressed and collapsing. And that's when you know you might have more that needs to be done. Yeah. Okay. So with this, you know, you'll see partners will fight, flight, freeze, blow up to minor provocations, freeze when frustrated, become helpless in the face of trivial challenges, that type of things. 
So we see this with complex PTSD. These are the symptoms of complex PTSD that Christine Courtois, who's an expert in this, writes about. She talks about disturbance in these six areas, and this is what we see in partners. So we have a decrease in uh, the ability to function with our regulation of our affect and our impulses, and we see with partners depression, suicidality, explosive anger, disinhibited behavior. Attention or consciousness, we see distraction, dissociation, intrusive thinking. With self-perception, we see shame, helplessness, self-blame. In our relationships with others, we see isolation, withdrawal, distrust. Somatization, headaches, stomach aches, illnesses. Systems of meaning, loss of faith, hopelessness, dips despair. So a lot of our partners are having these complex trauma type reactions. I think there's really a link there because it's an interpersonal trauma, which is different and harder to bounce back from, I think. So, yeah. There are so many addicts have complex trauma. So many addicts. And therapy has to go slow, and the, the mo one of the most important thing is the therapeutic relationship has got to be really safe. So you have to, if you're in that situation, you have to find a therapist. Take a consumer's approach to therapy. You have to find a therapist with whom you feel like you are really connected and you can bear your soul to because that's what, it, and you feel very safe with. And that can be a long-term relationship for you. But it's really, if you, you're with a therapist and you're not feeling that, you should go try another one. <laughs> Take a consumer's approach. Really get somebody that you feel safe with. Okay. I would really look for a therapist that has specific training in different types of trauma modalities. So that is, um, you know, one of some of the things I mentioned before, like uh, most, uh, um, somatic experiencing, EMDR. Uh, those are both very popular, effective approaches. Pia Melody's uh, post-induction model, very effective. So there's some really great types of treatments out there for trauma, but I would ask and make sure that they have some credentials. Because like, just like with sex addiction, a lot of people say, oh yeah, I treat trauma, but they really don't have any creds to do that. So that's really important. And I also, I would say too, I just, I'll put in a plug for my favorite type of couples modality too. I'm a big fan with sex addiction after disclosure. Uh, I would not go to this type of therapist until after the disclosure, but I'm a big fan of emotionally focused couples therapy, Sue Johnson's work. If you can, but don't go there before disclosure, unless they're also a CSAT. <laughs> so you want somebody to get that is educated in how to do a disclosure process, and then once you're through that process, then you know uh, EFT is great. It's a, it's one of the strongest forms of couples therapy out there. It's really effective. I'm also a fan of Gottman's work. Uh, somebody mentioned they, they work, did some of Gottman's work too. So, yeah, good question. Other questions? Yeah. Okay, so um, disclosure should be very, um, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, it's a very structured and planned process. And so I'll just kind of do a little overview for you guys. So generally what happens is the addict gets into recovery and they need traction under their belt. It's really important. Sometimes partners get frustrated with, you know, they want disclosure now, but it's really important. It's in their best interest for the addict to have traction. They want you want to get the addict to have that full evaluation so they've done their timeline, they've put it all out, they've got everything, their therapist knows them completely, they've, they, have, they can demonstrate behavioral change, they've been, you know, they've been showing up, their actions match up with their words, they become, they're becoming trustworthy. The only way to restore trust is reliable behavior over time. That's the only way. And so you have to get to the, to the point where the addict is showing up, doing what they say they're going to do, they're being honest. They're Otherwise, if you do a disclosure prior to that, you're probably not going to have all the information, is not going to be out there, and you're going to be doing a second disclosure later. So it is, does benefit to slow down the process a little bit for the addict. So you get all the information, make it very comprehensive. The partner 
also needs preparation. So if I'm the partner's therapist, I am working with the partner, I want to know, you know, what her fears are, what her um, missing information is, the times of unexplained experiences, questions that she has, he or she has. I want to know um, all the supports um, that, that we can bring in to support her, him or her during the week. So, um, you know, we, you know, typically if it's outpatient, the whole week is planned. So they, let's say they come in on Monday, we do the disclosure, then we have an immediate individual session afterwards, then maybe they go to the support group that night, then the next day we have another session or a couple session, and then we have, um, they're going out with their best friend that night and having a massage later. Then they're, you, know, you plan out the whole week so that there's support for the, par for, for the partner throughout the process. So um, that's really, really important. Um, you, I, in terms of like content for disclosures, I stick to um, clear factual information, um, not details. I really encourage my partners not to go for the details because it's really um, that creates more pain. Oftentimes, um, gives them, you know rent space in the head that is not helpful. But. I don't want to leave them guessing about anything. So I'll look for stuff like I had, you know, emotional and sexual affair with Cindy and had genital intercourse 10 times between January and December of 2012. Boom. Clear, factual, there's no, not a lot of room for questions there. You know, you want, it includes data, includes financial data. So, but it doesn't include details. Um, that are unnecessary, um, like you know, where, what restaurant did you go to, or you know, that kind of information. What particular position were you in? You know, I just say genital, oral, anal, protected, unprotected. You know, that kind of thing. Very clinical, factual data, and um, you know, I typically have them. You know, I have the addict. Um, I there, we have. I do training on this, and we do. Um, you know, we have different formats for writing it, some that are very, you know, a little bit more um, nurturing and emotionally validating, some that are more data-driven. Um, and then we have different, there are different strategies for actually rolling out a disclosure. So we have different methods, like how this set session is structured and set up, and, you know, when you respond and all that stuff. So there are strategies that I think are much more empowering to partners than other strategies where they have a little power in the process. Yeah, I'll take that and then I'll come up here. Well, um, unfortunately in those situations, those are the ones that often lead to divorce because the partner is saying, I, you know, you need help, you need, you know, I think you need help and the addict's still in the recreational phase of their addiction and, and sometimes, it's like an alcoholic, sometimes they don't realize that they're about to lose everything until they lose it. Partners sometimes don't realize in that situation how much power they have when they say, I'm out of here. Because the number one reason the addicts come to treatment is because the partner's left or is leaving. And sometimes it takes that kind of consequence to give the addict the gift of, what we call it, the gift of desperation, where they feel like they're losing things and they're having consequences, and that brings them internal motivation. We want the addict to ha be internally motivated. We can't be motivated for them. They have to be motivated. Unfortunately, some addicts have to hit bottom, and some addicts' bottoms are lower than others. And so it's, you know, sometimes you have to make the bottom happen, and um, that can be really difficult. Well, you're, you know, you're just going to be in a situation of supporting them in their unhappiness. And, you know, trying to help them set boundaries as best they can. You're probably not going to get a lot of change in the system. Right. Okay, so usually with that, and I'm going to talk about disclosure to kids in my next session, um, but other family members, usually, like, I'm talking about parents, siblings, um, you know, other important people. Usually uh, the disclosures are general in nature does not include specifics. So something like um, I have gotten in trouble with um, strip clubs, porn, prostitution, 
and it has affected me in these areas of my life, and you have them listed out, and it's impacted my relationship with you in these ways, and have them take some ownership of that. So it's like, but it, usually the disclosure is not detailed with other family members. And in my experience, usually that's okay. Most, you know, sisters, brothers, parents don't want to hear the, like, I still have a hard time hearing my father's story. It's like, ah, you know, it's like, you're not sexual, like, ah. It's like, you know what I mean? You don't really want to listen to your parent or your, you know, your brother, you know? So usually just generalities are okay with that. And, and I'm, I, I've not had um, a, a lot of those types of disclosures uh, be very reactive. Usually extended family, sibling stuff are very supportive. Sure. New relationships. So yes, um, as I mentioned, like what specifically? Because I kind of responded to that. Like, um, you know, I think th that um, I, I would, if I was the addict, I would work with my therapist on that and kind of outline it. But I would think that it, you would outline the general areas and sort of a s summarize the quantity and and how it impacted your life and maybe the progression. I don't think you'd be going. You wouldn't be saying like. I had 10 sexual experiences with Cindy during these dates because it's not going to be relevant to the new party. You know what I mean? You'd be saying I had several affairs on my in my last relationship that was contributed to the, you know, that type. So it would be less detailed. You have been listening to an audio recording from the Northwest Coalition for Healthy Intimacy. For more information or other recordings, please visit our website at www.healthyintimacy.net. Thank you for listening.